Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. It is Thursday, and that means Guy Talk is already in place and ready to go. All we need are your questions, so get them over to me at 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. The power panel is a little bit thinner today than usual, but uh, I'm always glad that we've got uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Kapsner, and 007, I think, is coming in soon. Pastor Tom Brock is on, I think he's on s- some appointment today, so he could not be here. But anyway, we're awfully glad uh, that the power panel is here, and let me know what your questions are again, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be with you, Bill. Thanks, and, Bill. Hey, Peter, how you doing? Well, I'm doing all right. Uh, coming from a remote studio today here, but uh, but definitely glad to be part of it. Yeah. So uh, we've got uh, questions to get started, and I hope hopefully uh, we'll get some more from listeners, because I always love when the listeners chime in with questions. They're always good ones. So let's get started with uh, something out of Proverbs. When you hear this, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. How awesome is that? I want to I wanna speak well. I want to bless people. But... This uh, listener said, I've had a temper all my life, and my mouth gets way ahead of my brain. I don't know what to do. How can I control my tongue and represent Jesus each day? I'm going to ask Tom Parrish to go first. Well, that's a tough one, and and I don't want to minimize this. If you have grown up and you are harsh with your your words, if you speak harshly and, and mean to people or you're ready to put people in their place, this is a real work of the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, rejoice that you're even aware of it and you want to change it. That's the big one. Secondly, you really need to have somebody in your life, uh, preferably another, you know, a buddy or whatever, that can hold you accountable, that can say to you, hey, tell me how you're doing. How'd you do this week? Tell me how the last three days have gone for you. And the third thing is uh, to talk to Jesus about it. When you make the mistake and you get harsh with somebody, certainly change your tone and repent as soon as you can. But immediately you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. I need to learn how to curb this. And over time, Bill, I've actually seen people... Uh, that diminish in their life. Mm. Some never get totally rid of it. I'm I'm not going to saying that they're all gone, but most of them is very diminished and it becomes very rare. Yeah, boy, that's a. I think first of all, it's a pretty raw um, question for a listener that is willing to ask that and kind of think through that to be to be reflective enough. I, I applaud that when somebody's honest with themselves about kind of maybe the things that they're doing that are not representative of God's kingdom in any way. And and so I think maybe among the tricky parts of that, if we just want to stay faithful to the scriptures, is James does talk a little bit about that it's from the overflow of the heart that the tongue speaks. This mm-hmm. is James 3 now. And and I think that the tongue is representative of the heart. And, and, that, and the heart is the steering mechanism of our life. The heart is the place where 
the the Hebrew people for whom the Proverbs was written, they, they would have considered the heart to be that place where your values are, where your dispositions are, where your attitudes are, where your where your desires are. And and it's from that place that then the tongue flows. And we can kind of try to bite our tongue, right? I mean, that's one of the phrases that we might use where we bite our tongue when we might want to say something that we otherwise shouldn't say. But I think the greater invitation here is to allow the tongue to be a revealer of what's in that wellspring, what's in that mm-hmm. steering wheel, what's in that heart of ours that we have, and then ask some questions there because it's in the work of the heart where I think God does that very real but ongoing formational work where uh, how I react to the world is is very much indicative of what's in that wellspring or what's in that steering wheel. But but I don't think we have to be afraid of that. I think we have to be willing to be honest as the, as the listener was and say, hang on a minute. There must be some kind of attitude, disposition, value, desire, whatever you want to call it, that w- is within my heart right now that is flowing through to my tongue. And maybe, God, could you reveal what's in the heart that is making its way to my tongue so that it's not about biting my tongue anymore for a lifetime. Hmm. It's simply about the natural flow coming from my heart begins to change from one of curse to blessing, uh, to use the language of James. I like that, Peter. Let me add a, a thought to that, because that's a good thought. Most of the New Testament, as you know, when you look at the Greek, the U's are plural. It's, yeah, it's right. always referring to the whole body, not just to an individual. We have in 21st century America in the West turned Christianity into almost individualism. So when we face a problem like this, and I'm happy when anybody speaks out on these issues or admits they have this problem, we, we're looking still too often for an answer apart from the body of Christ. And that's where I have made it a habit of gathering pastors around me through the years, because I'm a pastor. So I gather pastors and some lay people who would hold me accountable to what I preached, to the way I behaved in a meeting, uh, to the way I acted with the opposite sex. And that kept me out of not only a lot of trouble, it curbed a lot of bad behavior because I can Mm. be incredibly sarcastic. I can uh, put people in a corner real fast verbally. And I had to learn, if I'm going to represent Jesus, I can't do that. But the thought I had is this. My dad, as I was mentioning to Bill, was a home builder. I always hated it when he'd take me to a job site. And, Tom, we can't get a backhoe in here. You have to dig the footer. What I feared the most was a foot down hitting clay. When you hit clay, it's the hardest thing in the world. I think that when we have these kind of uh, sins in our life, when we're harsh with our tongue, that's usually over a long period of time, and it's like clay. And what I found is that it was much better if I had a crew of guys there helping me dig that rather than me dig it by myself. And we need one another in order to do that. And the only way I knew how to do it for myself personally was to be held accountable. <laughs> I love that analogy, Tom, because I sympathize. We, I tried to dig some pe- fence posts last year, and, and that, <laughs> even, even the very idea was a mistake to begin with, right? And then, and then I compounded the mistake by getting one of those automatic augers, I think they're called. Oh, yes. Depot or something. And boy, when I hit that clay, brother, that thing spun me around and I it, flew me into the chicken coop at that point. So it does. I, I, I sympathize with the idea, but I like what you're saying about being involved. I, I think when we're involved with other people, when we have the freedom to, to, to talk with fellow believers on the journey and not be afraid about that, and, and those relationships are hard to find, aren't they? The, the, they the, are. The trusted relationships to then maybe ask the really vulnerable question, which is, which is not my favorite question to ask of somebody else, which is, so... 
how how do you perceive me? How, how do you experience me in the world? Because so often I'm blind maybe to what's coming out of my mouth or maybe, you know, how I'm reacting to the world around me. But if you have a trusted friend that can say, all right, so Capsner, here's the deal. I know you're probably not aware of this blind spot, which is the very nature of a blind spot. You're not aware of it, it but it's that. I see you acting and interacting in this way. And I'm just wondering if that, if there's something about that, that, that we could wonder about together. And, and maybe there's some things going on within your wellspring, within your heart that should be looked at a little bit more closely. I just think that is such a profound place within what you've described our individualism to be able to be with trusted friends, to ask those hard questions, because I don't think any one of us, including the listener who wrote the question, that's like, you know, I just want to stay in this spot where I got a rough temper and, and I just want to kind of just anchor in in this clay in my heart and just stay here my whole life. But it's really hard to know how to maybe unmuck the clay of our hearts without fellow believers to give some wisdom along the way. It is, but it, I, that's why I look at those one another passages in the New Testament. I mean, it is throughout the entire New Testament. And yet, I'll be honest, I'm not sure how often I ever preached on those one another passages or taught on them. And I haven't heard a whole lot about it from other pastors yeah. either. Well, we're, we're not meant to. I mean, it's not that we're not meant to. We're, we're not. Uh, I mean, Tom, I've been at ground zero in, in seminary education about how we train our pastors. And I'll tell you what, we have very, very few classes in the seminaries in which I've been a part of that train us about how to be the we together as the temple of the Holy Spirit, as each one of us is a building block in that place. We focus a lot more on our personal relationship with Jesus, on our personal discipleship, and our personal formation. And and dare I say, that is a product that is representative of individualistic American ways of thinking and not biblical kingdom ways of thinking. And, yep. and I don't think that's going to be uprooted too easily or too <clears> soon, but we, we covered some ground last week a little bit about just sort of the ongoing moral failings that have been so devastating to the church community. And among the reasons for that is, is I do think we don't know necessarily how to live well in relationship together. I mean, I, my church might be 30 miles away from me and I get up and drive to it uh, or pre pre COVID I would have, or now during COVID I might check it out online. And then I'm just back to whatever my life was the hour before that church service. And I've been talking with my students about this stuff, man, and I don't know what the answer to is it. I mean, I'm not I'm I'm not suggesting that they all go buy forty acres in a commune and share a lawnmower together or anything, <laughs> but but there is there's something about life together that I think we've really missed out on on a number of levels. I agree very much. So one of the reasons I'm so dedicated to Guy Talk and so dedicated to being part of this is that in my many years of ministry, there have only been a handful of times I've been with a group of men who are as honest as this group is. And, and if you're a listener, what you're hearing is honestly from our heart. There, there's no setup beforehand. There's no game playing. This is really what we believe in, who we are. And this is rare, but it is for me the best part of my week. Yeah. And I'm just going to backtrack a second. If you, Tom, if you can find those 40 acres, since you know how to use an auger, I'm all in. <laughs> I, I never, ever want to use an auger ever again. You always got to use two people on an auger. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's no way. Never again. I mean, you guys and your tools intimidate me. My handyman strategy is to measure once and go to Home Depot twice. <laughs> yeah, I've done that too. Where have you been all my life? I've needed that strategy. All right, let me take a little break. There's some great questions coming in. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. I'll be back in just a minute.
All right, that's kind of mellow music for guy talk, but it'll work. All right, we're back. I think uh, 007 has joined us. Pastor Justin Jepson is on board. Hello, 007. Hey there, Bill. Good to be with you all. little uh, noise in the background. We'll take that. Got kitties uh, yeah. at home, so that's fine. We're glad to have you yeah. with us. Glad you're with us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, me too. All right, lots of questions coming in. Here's one from Lisa. Is it wise as a Christian to read other religious texts or books like The God Delusion? Wondering if it would be helpful to understand the other side better or harmful of what it might open. Hmm. Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think, Lisa, I, I think it maybe depends a little bit uh, on that. I think we don't do ourselves any favors if we just decide to put our heads in the sand and, and, and uh, not be aware of what's happening in the world and, and being a student of the world around us. But at the same time, but I do remember when I was doing some of my graduate work. And as part of that graduate work, I was getting exposed to the ideas overseas of God representing himself. It's the same God who represents himself in Buddhism, as in Islam, as in Judaism, as in Christianity. And, and this is a pretty, pretty pervasive idea that was going on within the religious pluralism of our world as the internet was bringing us closer together, as travel was bringing us closer together. And, and there's plenty of theologians that were suggesting, hey, you know, your perception of God is primarily a product of the soil on which you've grown up. And if you grew up in Saudi Arabia, then uh, Allah would be your God. If you grew up in India, then you might be uh, within a Hindu caste or, or perhaps uh, following the teachings of Buddha. Or if you grew up in Japan, it might be Shintoism, but you're in the United States of America, so it's primarily a Christian. And and th- those were troubling questions for quite some time, Bill. And, and thankfully, I was in the kind of situation and scenario where over time you could navigate that. But I think if you are going to head into some of these kinds of teachings about the merits of maybe like secular humanism or atheism or anything along those lines, I think you better do it, as we've talked about earlier, with some other trusted people. And and I think you better um, do it from a place of, I'm, I, I, I need to be equipped myself in some ways to do it. I mean, I, I certainly came out the other side of that loving Jesus in, in some way more profound ways with a better understanding of some of those questions and, 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 and why they exist. But those are, those are tricky times, and I wouldn't have wanted to try to do that whole deal alone, that's for sure. It's a good word. Yeah. Jump in, Justin. Yeah, I don't know if I have a whole lot more to add. I think that's good. I think it definitely takes a lot of discernment, wisdom, and tr- I think it um, I, I think, you know, at least if you're feeling drawn into that, you know, it might be perhaps that the Lord is, is preparing you to, uh, and to open up doors of conversation uh, with people that would maybe to adhere to, you know, other different religions. And I think it, um, you know, I think the only other thing, too, to make sure that you're, you're really grounded in the Word of God and have a good understanding yeah. so that you're doing that alongside of, um, of the Word. And, and I think that that'll show forth the distinctiveness of the gospel uh, of God's grace uh, alongside, you know, uh, every other world, worldly system or world religion. So, yeah, that's, and my daughter is uh, agreeing with that. Yeah, yeah. it was good. Um, I was going to say, you're getting some yeah. solid amens there, yeah, Justin. That, I love it. Yeah, Amen and hallelujah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll stop with that, but I think that's, okay. that's a great question. And move forward, yeah, with wisdom, discernment, community, and being grounded in God's Word in the process. I've had the privilege of reading many of those other texts over the years. Um, For whatever reason, the Lord turned me into a real student of history and the Word and a variety of things, and I'm I'm fairly good at comparing and contrasting. So I do a lot of writing, and I try to put things together. One thing that I don't think most people have the privilege of doing, that's why, like you say, do it with a group of people if you do. 
you need some way to be able to compare. What does, you know, it say over here in, you know, Confucius say, or what does Hinduism say, or the sub-branches of that, compared to what Jesus says about forgiveness, or eternal life, or how you deal with your enemies? It doesn't take long until you see the contrast, and you begin to understand that from the words of the New Testament or the Bible, there's really life for living. From the other ones, you've got a lot of philosophy, but it's philosophy based upon an idea, not based upon a personal savior. And for me, that made all the difference. And so now when people are caught up in this, uh, fortunately, I can ask them questions about, okay, so you're reading the Quran. Great. What do you think of Sirah? You know, chapter four, verse such and such, and what it says about you know, uh, Allah in there. Those are the kind of things that I think most of us uh, that are so-called, you know, well-read need to be doing. But it's very hard, I think, for the average person. And that isn't a put down at all. It's just a reality because it's hard to compare all those texts. So I would say yeah, to the listener out there, be careful about doing this unless you have a group of people to do it with and you have a way of analyzing this and comparing and contrasting. Yeah, I, that's such a good word, Tom. I think on so many levels. I, my theology professor used to use this phrase often, that Christianity was maybe not the only explanation for the human experience, but it is the best explanation for the human experience. And I, and I really appreciated that. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look at, say, for example, a teaching of, of Buddhism, that's something along the lines of one of the causes of our sense of suffering is our inability to handle change. Now, that can be as fortune cookie as much as it can be a, a, a teaching from a major religion. But but there's some interesting parts of that. And, and I can see why people kind of get drawn in, because it's not like you're sitting down and reading a bunch of stuff if you read from other religious traditions or from even something like a secular humanism that is going to make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And, and yet... At the same time, it's also a thin view at best and uh, and leads astray at worst, and I often think that it can. And, and when you compare that then to the God of the of the Christian tradition, of the Judeo-Christian tradition in particular, and, and one of the things you begin to see is this God who is motivated by an outward-looking energy called love, this, this, this desire to see all things made whole, a tender-hearted affection for his children, a never-forsaking love that pursues into the midst of the muck of life. Well, you start using that kind of language and barking up that tree even just a little bit, and there is such a difference of that God, uh, of, uh, of why he came down and why the heavens rent open in order that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And all of that language, that is such a unique God that would actually come after his children and isn't in the heavens to be up there to be appeased. That isn't in the heavens that is up there to somehow uh, we, we need to do a bunch of rituals and stomp around and do a bunch of stuff to get God to move on our behalf. That idea of the outward looking, ever moving God of love who pursues us in the midst of the muck uh, of our life, that is so uniquely and distinctly Christian. Yeah. Uh, and it is also why I would suggest that if we're not gathering in the fellowship of believers where they know we're believers by our love, it's because we manifest the really the realities of heaven here on earth and shine the light of that God. Well, the Christian God, boy, if you want to try to collapse and say, well, the Christian God is the same as the Islamic God, is the same as uh, following Buddha, is the same as the Hindu Reg Veda traditions and all of you just even do a cursory look at it, and, and, and the God of heaven that we worship and serve is so fundamentally different on every possible level. You know, I honestly had a guy do that to me. Uh, he asked me for lunch many years ago. His wife came to our church. He was not a believer, but he was well-read in all the other religious police out there. And he said, you know, it's the same God. 
It's the same basic belief. It's the same teaching all over the place. I said, well, great. If, if that's true, then I've got one question for you. In the Gospel of John, Jesus you know, identifies himself in at least seven different ways, the great I am's. Tell me what you think about those. That's exactly what I got back, dead mm. silence. And, <laughs> and the point is very simple. Most of us come up with these big cliche statements about they're all the same, never really having looked hard enough at them. And I think as Christians, we've got to be gentle and loving, but challenge people. Tell me what you yeah. found. Tell me why Jesus says you should forgive your enemies. What other religion says you should forgive your enemies, you know, and pray for those who despitefully use you? I don't know of any. If you know of them, please tell me. I'd like to read that. And that's usually where people begin to hopefully wake up a little bit. Mm. Above and uh, above average interesting, I have to admit. Yeah. I, uh, well, can I have, we have time to add one more thing there, Bill? Of course, Justin. Um, yeah, no, I just jogged my memory. Um, you know what, I think sometimes it's helpful to have a framework when we enter into kind of the comparative contrasting different things. And I think that one of the things that I've talked about with students before and the, and the times that I've got to teach an ethics class is just kind of the five key questions that really shape someone's worldview. And, and really, essentially, every worldview has to answer these questions in, in order for it to be somewhat of a coherent worldview. And that's simply, um, first one is, who is God? So that's a question of ultimate reality, um, you know, and whether somebody has a, a name for that God or whether it's, it's, you know, they're that God or secular humanism or it's, you know, but who is God? It's a question of ultimate reality. Uh, second question is, who, who am I? You know, a question of human, what is humanity? It's a, it's a question of identity. Uh, third question is a question of why am I here? In other words, it's a question of purpose. <laughs> um, and what, what, why, do, why am I living? Why am I here on this earth? What am I here for? Uh, fourth question is what went wrong with the world? Because <laughs> I think everyone's honest. There's definitely something dramatically wrong with the world and, and seeing the brokenness and the darkness and the pain and the violence and the unrest. And so, you know, why are there pandemics? So, you know, it's a question of what's the biggest problem. And then the fifth question is how can it be made whole again? What's the greatest, what's the, what is the solution? And so I think that, you know, if you answer, seek to ask those questions, as Peter said, I think Christianity offers the best answer to all five of those questions. Mm -hmm. And I think if you, if you clear on what does the Bible say and how about who is God, who am I, why am I here, what went wrong and how can we be made whole again? And you compare that to the other world religions, I think you're going to really see the distinctiveness emerge and surface uh, of what Christianity has to offer. Nicely done, gentlemen. We're already at break time. This is going quickly. When we come back, I want to address this question to get things started. I'm concerned about my family who claim to be Christians, but they don't spend any time reading Scripture. Do you think they can take comfort in their salvation without having an interest in reading God's Word? Maybe it's really nothing that I should be concerned about. We'll address that when we come back. Let's get it. 
Welcome back to Guide Talk. We've got a great uh, panel here in place. Pastors Tom Parrish and Justin Jepson and Dr. Peter Kapsner is the squad. You guys are doing a great job. There's some great questions coming in. And the one I asked right before we went to break, I'll jog your memories. I'm concerned about my family who claim to be Christians, but they don't spend any time reading Scripture. Do you think they can take comfort in their salvation without having an interest in reading God's Word? Maybe it's really nothing that I should be concerned about. Well, I think on the first hand, I think that's right to be concerned, um, and I think there's a lot of people, and Scripture talks about that, that will name the name of Christ and, um, in fact, don't don't know Him. Um, you know, I, I think on one hand, you know, we can be uh, mindful of, you know, the early Christians, you know, for the fact that the first 1,500 years, you know, Christians, the only time they could hear from the Word was if they showed up in community. They didn't have copies of the Scripture until the Gutenberg Press. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I think that, you know, and they still have a vibrant faith and we read about them in Acts, of course, right? And that's like, you know, the model and the example. Um, but yet with that said, you know, I think it, it, I would, uh, you know, gracefully press into their maybe assumption of what it means to be a Christian. You know, and if, if Jesus says that to be a really Christian is to be a disciple, which means that you're being taught how to obey what he's commanded us. Um, how would we do that if we are not saturated in His Word? Um, and uh, in terms of the various modes of access that we have to it, so um, I, you know, I don't know how. Uh, on one hand, I think it's a little bit antithetical to say there's a Christian that doesn't have any desire um, for the Word of God in some in, in terms of having some type of intake of it into their lives. It doesn't always have to be reading it. It can be reading. It can be listening. Um, so I think I would maybe press in and just ask some questions, you know, what does that mean? Or what do you think, you know, if, if they don't know who, what Jesus, who he is and what he said, uh, in terms of following him, um, I think they're going to maybe see that there's a little bit of, uh, maybe a lack of integrity between what they profess and what they're living out. It's a good word. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I, it is a good word, Justin. I think that's that's a that's somewhat of a tricky thing. But if we think of discipleship as maybe a, a synonym for that, and I appreciate when people use the synonym apprentice sometimes for being a disciple, because the idea of being a disciple is that you are following the understandings, the, the character, the power, the authority who you claim to be a teacher of authority in, in the kingdom. And so there's many people in Jesus's day that took on disciples, that took on followers, but what they were is they were apprentices who were growing in the likeness of their master. That was the general idea, and, and that they could begin to think about the world the way their master might think about the world. They would take on the character of their master. They they would begin to wield the sort of power and authority that their master might wield. And and so they were apprentices for their master. And, and I think about, like, let's say I wanted— to be to be a blacksmith or something like that. I don't even know for sure what a blacksmith does, but um, <laughs> if I wanted to be a blacksmith and showed absolutely no interest in busting out a hammer or an anvil uh, or banging out some shoes or some swords or whatever it happens to be that a blacksmith does, you would wonder about my apprenticeship to being a blacksmith on some level. And and I think to be an apprentice in uh, of Jesus in God's kingdom, because that's really the point of this. Sometimes I think, unfortunately, we have divided up 
salvation somehow from discipleship when they're actually one and the same thing. Because what we're saved from is we're saved from the from the power of sin and death as having the final say in our life. We're not just saved from the idea of an eternal destiny one way or the other. Our, our destiny is simply the result of of where we're headed already in this life in so many ways. So salvation is about the rescuing from the power of sin and death in our life. And and there's a new life at work in us, and we become apprentices within that new life, within God's kingdom. And if we're going to be apprentices, then how do we learn? How do we grow? How do we become equipped in, in all of that? And this goes back to something we talked about a little bit last week. If our perception of what's going on in Christianity is just getting people rightly positioned for the other side, that's a very, very thin view of the mm-hmm. invitation where Jesus said, follow me. And I will teach you how to become like me, actually. And boy, there's actually a beautiful invitation in all of that to say, I don't want to be subject to the power of sin and death as having the final say in my life. I know it's going to have its influence while I'm still in this perishable body, being ra- waiting to be raised imperishable. But as the, 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 a, a different power of life is at work in me, I want to grow in the realities of that life. And communion, regular communion is a way to grow in that life. To to get out into sort of silent retreats might be a regular way to grow in that life. To to develop a life of prayer, to be with your uh, with your friends talking about these things of the faith, to have dinner with people and, and wonder about our faith together. And then to read the scriptures is another place of that. I think we just live with such a profound, weird, kind of interesting disconnect and misunderstanding that this whole thing related to what's called the eschatological question, like, where am I going to go when I die? When actually the invitation is, you follow me, and I will set you free from the powers of sin and death so that you can grow into Christ's likeness, begin to shine with my actual life, and call more people safely home as you bear witness and, and testify to the worth of following me. That's really the invitation, but it, it takes a different starting point, I would say, in our faith. And I know that's a pretty long and rambly answer in some ways, but but scripture study, I think, for many people is like, eh, so I guess I'm supposed to do it on some kind of level. I don't really know why. My eternal destiny is secured, all of these kinds of things. But if we reframe the question from the beginning, that I'm becoming an apprentice in kingdom life to bear witness to a beautiful light to call people home, well, maybe there's something else at stake, I would suggest. Peter, uh, on Mondays at my house, I do metallurgy, so you can learn how to blacksmith if you have time. <laughs> this now, is great. I can learn to auger and metallurgy <laughs> yeah, with you. I got, this is so exciting. I got stuck like minutes ago when I'm thinking, I don't, does a blacksmith, do they put shoes on horses? Because if you, I don't know. If it just sounds like they might. If they, you're a horse, don't you think you pretty much buy the first pair you try on? You would think so. Yeah. But, you know. And to get something nailed to your hoof, I just think <laughs> I'm out. I would tap out if I was a horse. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I would encourage the, uh, the person who brought the question in is try to discern, if you can, why they have a lack of interest. I have been amazed because I've been in education all my life. My wife was in education and a principal. We've been around this so much. I will tell you honestly, there are many people that can't read. You would think in America people could read. You'd be surprised how many adults cannot read with what I call comprehension. The other thing is there are a lot of people who read and it makes no sense to them. That's why more small groups at church, more small groups in the neighborhood, doing this together is so important. I have a brother-in-law who I love dearly, uh, but to give him a Bible and tell him to read it, you may as well be throwing him over a cliff. He witnesses all the time. He leads people to Christ. We buy him everything on audio. He's got an audio Bible. He can hear it and pick it up. He can't read it and pick it up. Now, if they just don't have an interest because they're indifferent, that's a different story. And that's where they have to be challenged. And they're thinking about, why are you letting Jesus down? 
by not reading what he has to say to you? Why are you not seeing this as important? So if you understand the motivation, then there are, there are ways to attack it and ways to help people hopefully wake up. All right, lots of questions yeah. coming in. Here's another one. Uh, I have a question about our heart. Many places in the Bible, it says that our heart is deceitful. But, um, but, but in other places, it says we have to believe in our heart. Now, how do those two reconcile? Is it a translation of the word heart that is confusing me? I think we have to be careful from that Jeremiah passage, Bill, to read that that's a macro statement that Jeremiah is making. I mean, he's addressing the people of Israel in those moments. And so to make a macro statement that the heart is deceitful above all else, I I think it'd be fair to say that he is addressing how the people are perceiving their life in God's kingdom as stewards of that kingdom in the nation of Israel, and that they've deceived themselves in those moments. But to derive... um, a macro universal theological statement from that, I think, is among the many things we often do with the text. I don't know, Justin and, and, and Parrish, I would love for you guys to chime in on that. I think we just have to be so careful that the Bible authors and the speakers are not, they're hardly ever deriving um, mass, transcultural, trans time theological statements. They're addressing things that are going on in those moments. So, one way to rectify it is to understand that they're addressing audiences in those times and probably addressing the nation of Israel and the deceit that they're walking in in those moments. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said, and I think that's a good, um, again, it's a good framework when we read in terms of rightly understand and interpret a, a given passage like that one in Jeremiah. And, you know, I think that's why later on in the context of Jeremiah, you know, in, in chapter 30, I think that's Jeremiah 17, it talks about the, the heart is deceptively wicked above all things, but he says in Je- you know, Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant, that God's going to give us a new heart. Um, and, and I think the, you know, it says in Proverbs 4.23 that guard your heart for from it's the wellspring of life. And so I think it's really all about who's, who's on the throne of your heart and really the, you know, the biblical understanding of the heart, you know, and even kind of the Hebrew translation, it's kidneys. It's, it's really talking about the center of one's being, the center or kind of the, the, the control uh, seat of one's mind, will, and emotions and what's ruling that. And um, and so I think that's why under the new covenant we have, we've been given a new heart, taken out a heart of stone, given a heart of flesh. We've been born again. Um, we've been made new. And um, and but yet at the same time we still have sinful flesh that we battle against. But yet our heart has changed. Our our disposition um, has has been completely renovated. So um, I think that's yeah. Uh, I think you kind of need to look at more of a biblical theological understanding of the heart and looking at the trajectory of the redemptive story of Scripture to help better understand those type of specific statements addressing the human heart. It's interesting because Jesus in Matt in Mark uh, Matthew fifteen eighteen says almost the same thing as Jeremiah. He says, "But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart." And this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I think the point is this. If you're thinking of the heart as the pumping organ in the middle of your body, that's a mistake. If you think of the heart, biblically, as the place where you make decisions, the place where you value what's important in life, the place where you, you know, how you look at the world and people, then it begins to make more sense. And the reservoir is this. You know, I, I often heard somebody say that, you know, uh, Noah was so thankful for the ark and so thankful for salvation and so thankful all the animals were saved, but he could hardly wait to get out of the ark because it stunk so bad. The bottom line is our heart can either produce good or evil. We have a tendency to be selfish with our heart and produce what we call 
self-centeredness when it's only motivated by ourselves, but when it's motivated, and I think, Peter, you brought this up, when it's motivated by the Holy Spirit, when it's motivated by our relationship with Jesus, then we have the potential of having the good things come out. So the reservoir is the same. It's, it's kind of who we're looking to and who has the power to influence our life and give us direction. Yeah, I mean, secret agent guy, you 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 know, you do formation at Northwestern all the time, and and that that's really the invitation that you have for students is formation, sort of this fancy word. But what you're describing there is what does it mean to be able to interact with God's redemptive resources that are ever at hand that that help to shift and change and form our hearts so that our attitudes and our values and our dispositions and 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 how we perceive of the world become in greater alignment with the kingdom and actuality because the kind of christian life i don't want to live is don't peek be you know behind the man be, or the, the man behind the curtain life i don't want you to ever pull back the curtain of my heart i and live the false hypocritical life that i think a lot of people understandably feel like they're living in because they maybe haven't been invited into what it means to to walk the discipleship apprenticeship journey where our, our very wellspring is being transformed by the spirit increasingly from this heart of stone to this heart of flesh so that our reactions that we have to the world around us are are naturally but supernaturally informed by God's work in our heart. I think we spend a lot of time in behavior management, trying to trying to control our behaviors for for people to view it, not wanting people to see behind the curtain of our heart. But what would it mean to invite God into those places of our heart where our actual wellspring is being formed by Him? I mean, I, I know that's the invitation, Justin, you have for students to really think about their their apprenticeship in the faith. All right, let yeah, me take a yeah. little let me take a little oh, break. Lord, We're up against a break here, Justin. I, I apologize. Yeah. But we'll be right back with more guy talk. <laughs> Thanks for your, all your great questions. I still have many to get to, so we'll try to get through as many as possible when we come back. We have to have his daughter on every week. She had something to the show. Talk. Lisa said, Thursdays are my favorite days to commute home from work because of Guy Talk. And I just want to say, Lisa, thanks for that comment. And uh, boy, do you ever keep your car nice and clean. <laughs> Unlike Peter, who's got Burger King wrappers all over the floor of his car. Oh, man, you're crashing into my privacy, Bill, but you're not wrong. <laughs> and Lisa's He's question. True. I've seen inside of his car. I have so. too, yeah. Lisa's question is, when is our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Under what circumstances can it be removed? That seems like a good Tom Parrish question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Bible talks about her name being written in there literally from the foundation of the world, and then it says that again in Revelation. Um, I think it is... It, it ties right into, it is the Lord's will it all be saved and come from the knowledge of the truth. Put the two together. It is the Lord's will that we be with him forever. It is the Lord's will that our name is written in there. However, our failure to respond to Jesus, to repent, to trust in him, could get that name scratched out. And I think that we have to look at that seriously and realize that Christianity is not an event where we come and make a decision for Jesus. It is a process of making a daily decision for Jesus and walking with him. And that's where I want my name, and I want it there because I love Jesus. Okay, I've never disagreed with you, Tom Parrish, but today's my first day. Please do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
when your name is written in the book of life, it's it's permanent. God does not, if, if you've been given this gift of eternal life and you have it removed, it was a little short of eternal, right? I don't see point. any name that's, that's in the good... book of life ever getting scratched out. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Okay. And, and I, I don't disagree with that. I just find the, the reconciliation between, you know, if the Lord wants everybody to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, then why isn't everybody saved? That's another great question. And I think the struggle is that until we're confronted with the Savior Jesus and get serious about him, that whatever God the Father's will is for us becomes null and void if we don't respond to Jesus. When we do respond to him, it reaches its fullness. Um, I've got tons of family members who I want their name written in the book of life and want to have nothing to do with Jesus, and it drives me nuts. Yeah, I understand. All right, somebody else. Jump in. Yeah, yeah. I, the water's know, warm. One of the areas, yes, it's good, and you know they'll still heat it up even more. But I, you know, I think, I think one of the, you know, one of the areas that it says this is I was just looking this up in Jesus, um, one of the seven letters in the churches, different churches in Revelation. I think it was the to the church in Sardis. You know, says to the there's the promise of the overcomers. You know, that kind of concludes these various letters. And to the church of Sardis, he says, to the one who overcomes, he says, I will not blot out, blot out your name in the book of life. Now, I think there's two ways you can look at that. You could read that to, to say that if I will not blot it out, could infer that if you don't overcome, then you, in fact, then your name will be that it was written and that it'll be blotted out. Or you could mean that to infer or to read that, that those whose names are written in the book of life um, will prove that to be the actual case because they will be the ones that overcome. Does that make sense? So it's the fruit of, or the yeah. evidence of one's of one's name being written in the book of life, not as a way to secure or to earn it for yourself. And so in other words, it's something that God has done and something that's shown forth through the course of, of our time and our life with God. But I, I do believe um yeah, that there is there is that personal um, response that is needed. Um, yet at the same time, it's God is still sovereign over our salvation. That He knew us, chose us before the foundation of the world. Ephesians one four says. Um, so I think that uh, if, if if God has chosen to save us, um, that and that was before we even were alive, then there's nothing that we can do to undo what God has already decided to be done. Yeah, I've I've got nothing more on that one. That one, uh, boy, Justin, that was well said, and and uh, yeah, I think nothing, I'm just going to leave it right there. Yeah, no, you know, forget what <laughs> I said, guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, thanks, Justin. I just that that's one of those things. I mean, the question really is, can you lose your salvation? And and I understand the question. I think that's such a that's such a big topic that. Boy, oh boy, I, I think I'd hesitate. There, there's certain things I was telling my classes today. There's certain things that I feel pretty comfortable in teaching that I think are at least approximate, if not are entirely consistent with God's kingdom, and other things I'd be afraid that are a little too half cooked and half cooked in my own thinking. I would not want to put them out for for public service. It's one of those things that I that I need to really kind of think about and chew on for quite a while and do some more research. I'm just not comfortable. And Justin, I love what you said, because those seem like some pretty interesting trees to bark up related to this question. See, one of the places I struggle is Jesus says, you know, to those uh, on the day of judgment, they say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And he says, be gone. I never knew you. I think it is the knowing 
that we really should be talking about, not whether my name's written in the book of life or not. It's If I know and I am submitting to Jesus throughout my life, there's not an issue. You know, I've been married 48 years, and I still have to renew every day my love for my wife. I can't say, well, I did it at the altar, you know, back 40-some years ago. The heck with it now. You know, and if she wants to know if I love her, she should ask me. I have to display that by by pursuing her. And I think if I could get more Christians, more people that claim Jesus to pursue him and really pursue him, to be like him, to know him, to serve him, this wouldn't even be a concern. But it becomes a concern because many of us are, are kind of caught in between. We don't know because we don't know how to pursue him on a regular basis. Yeah, that's really well said, Tom. And I, yeah, you know, I think kind of t- tying this all, I think all these questions in some ways are kind of connected because, you know, I think if someone says they're a Christian but has no regard for the Word of God, doesn't have a desire, appetite for it, I mean, I think it begs the question, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Mm-hmm. You know, and how, do you, and how do you know you're a Christian? And I think we really can't answer that if we don't have an understanding of, of Scripture. And, in fact, I think having an appetite for Scripture is one of the vital signs that we've been born again. You know, mm-hmm. and I like to say it this way, once you've been born again, you have to grow again. And, mm-hmm. you know, I love First Peter 2 says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And so, and then, and again, it's hiding God's Word in our heart, right? That That is such a key aspect of our continued ongoing lifelong process of being further formed into the image of the one who saved us. And so, um, yeah, I think all, I think all of this really ties back to, we, we need to know what the word says and, and trust it so that we do have that confidence and assurance of what it means to be a Christian and that we belong to him and, and that, um, we are saved, not just for, from hell, but we're saved for, um, and for God, for himself and to enjoy that eternal life beginning here and now, and it also happens to last for forever. <laughs> That's the good news. Okay, staying on this theme, here's another uh, question. On this point of, on this side of Christ's resurrection, is there ever a point in someone's life when they can't repent besides blaspheming the Holy Spirit? No. I would say no, too. You can always repent. Mm-hmm. Always. And I've seen some of the worst mm-hmm. people at the moment of death who sincerely repented. So, yeah, the repentance, the Lord's hand is stretched out to the very, what we call the very final moment to anyone who will reach back and proclaim him as Lord. I think the prodigal son story gives us such a good picture of that, guys, right? At the end of the day, I think Scripture does bear witness to the idea that God will let go, that God will give over, that God will sort of stop the wooing, ever-whispering process that God does and lets go and and allows people to sort of walk away from that. But uh, regardless of how far you've walked away, if you find yourself in that pigsty of your life and all of a sudden you have this wake-up moment that says, oh my gosh, what have I done? Mm -hmm. I have squandered all of the good gifts of my father. I have used them for my own gain. And and you're sitting in that slop and, and uh, I, I think that picture that Jesus gives us in that parable of the father ever looking out on the horizon for the return of his son is such a beautiful picture uh, of a God in heaven who's not going to be sitting there with his arms folded saying, yeah, I don't know, we'll have to decide here if this is going to work out for you. That The father literally runs as soon as he catches a vision of the son who's returning home from the pigsty of their life. And, and in that running, 
uh, a Jewish father would never have run because they would have been wearing these long Jewish robes with not anything underneath them. And it was incredibly shameful to run because of the ways in which those robes would then flop all over the place and be very revealing and shameful of the father. And so when Jesus says that, it's this incredible picture of anybody that wants to return from the pigsty, not only does it sort of a grudging father maybe think about welcoming back into the kingdom, but will actually run towards the son in ways that is completely a disregard of worrying about honor, worrying about glory, worrying about all of that stuff. God just so desires that, that none would perish, that when the turn happens, anybody can come back home. You know, I know of no other religious writing in the world that offers that kind of story. Like right. Luke 15, mm-hmm. that offers that no. kind of redemption. It is astounding, and that's why I encourage people to go to the New Testament, see what Jesus says. Okay, gentlemen, that mm-hmm. was a fast hour, really fast hour. The nice thing is, is there's all kinds of questions that have still come in, but I have my guest coming up next hour who I will ask some of these questions to, so stay tuned. But that's all for Guide Talk now. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, and I Bill. say that, and I really mean it, just so you know. All right, that wraps it up. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, Rick Manson and John Afonso will be with me. And Rick, of course, has a uh, ministry uh, teaching and going on college campuses and taking the tough questions. So I think I got a couple questions questions here from this hour. I'll be asking them. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. Be lots more coming up in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.